Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. Boy, that's good. You know, the first service did the same thing. Good morning. I love it. Uh, you know, here we are, Memorial Day weekend, and I loved what, how Alex introduced Memorial Day. I, I, I love Memorial Day, one, because it's kind of a kickoff to summer. Uh, two, yeah, I do remember with gratefulness uh, the cost that people paid for, for us to be able to do this right now, and, and I'm very grateful for that. And, and there's a third uh, thing that I'm also very thankful for, and that is, as I am a citizen of God's kingdom, I think of the people that have come before us to be able to pave the way for our faith, to be able to have something like this today, to be able to have grown uh, into the influence that it is in this world. Um, you know, I just have a, a little uh, home, I guess, home business here, family business, and that's just to let you know that one of those folks who has meant so much to our fellowship here at South went home to be with the Lord on Friday night, and her name was Ann Cresswell. Many of you may remember Ann and Neil. Uh, they were here for many years, involved in so many ways. Neil passed away about a year ago. Uh, the thing I always remember about Neil, you know, you just kind of wait on a Sunday to see if he'd, he'd invite you to go to the Broncos game with him. <laughs> or, or even if you were really special, you get to go to the Abs game with him. And, um, you know, it was interesting because I was talking to Julie, uh, Ann's daughter, on Friday night. She passed away about 6.30, and we were talking about it. And, and Julie was able to say she passed away very peacefully. And, and she said, you know, I can just picture mom. She's up there seeing Jesus finally. This is what she wanted. And she was so looking forward to seeing dad again. And then she paused, and she said, let's wait. It's 6.30. You know, dad's probably watching the abs game right now, and he's saying, why don't you wait? No. <laughs> Who knows? If you knew Neil, you know that. Uh, we are going to be having her service uh, next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock right here at the church. You're all invited to come if you would like to. Uh, you know, this morning I'm going to be looking at uh, one of those strong roots in our faith, uh, one of those characters who kind of paved the way. And, and I have to admit, there's not an awful lot written about this character. Um, I've loved this series that Alex has been doing of going through post-resurrection appearances. So let's take a look at what Alex has looked at so far. Mary Magdalene, Cleopas, Thomas, Peter. Um, and you know, he's done a great job with these alliterations. Uh, darkness for Mary Magdalene. You can just picture that shadow upon her. Um, Cleopas, is, he and his uh, companion are walking the road to Emmaus. And just the defeat that they're feeling. Um, Thomas, and we always know Thomas for doubting, and Peter, his despair, knowing that he had denied his Savior. But Jesus reinvested in, in Peter. Um, as I've thought about the character for the day, I've tried to come up with a name, uh, another D. And, um, you know, as I think of these characters, all of them were followers of Jesus Christ. And they would have such disillusionment during that time of seeing that Jesus was crucified and what's going to happen in the future now. The character we're going to look at today did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet, the character we're going to look at today was probably closer to Jesus 
than any of these followers on this screen. Um, I'm going to go to a passage that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to try, I'm going to be jumping all over the place. So I will try to give you the little address for these verses, but also I'll be plopping them up on the screen. And to tell you the truth, the verses don't say that much. So don't you have something to look forward to? Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says these words. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. You know, just think about that. And we don't have any recording of that in the Bible outside of this. But there was some time when Jesus met with 500 people after his resurrection. And those 500 people all saw him in living faith. That's kind of amazing. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And guess what? The character we're going to look at is James. And those six words are basically the only description we have of this post-resurrection appearance. You know, when you think of Mary Magdalene, you see her at the grave. And you see how Jesus came and comforted her. When you, when you think of Peter, you think of him by the fire. And how Jesus re reinstated him. He was seen by James, and that's it. And so we have to start with this question, who's this James? Who is James? Um, now, <clears throat> there are about three Jameses in the New Testament that are meant. There's actually four, but one of them kind of sneaks in there because it says, Joseph, the son of James, and that's all we hear. And so I just disregard him. But the other three Jameses, one is James, the son of Alphaeus, one is James, the son of Zebedee, and both of them are disciples of Jesus Christ followers of Jesus. Um, James, the son of Zebedee, was a brother of John. They were known as sons of thunder. They would call fire down on people and stuff like that. Um, James, the son of Alphaeus, was known as James the Lesser. Maybe he was shorter. Maybe he was younger. We don't know. But both of them are disciples. And look at what it says. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. So they're included in that group. This James is some other James that comes out in the New Testament. So let me take you to a verse in Matthew. And, uh, you know, Alex is very good at explaining this. You know, Matthew is one of the biographies of Jesus, his life. We've got four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of them focused upon Jesus. But, you know, it's so fascinating. Sometimes they look at the same events and it's almost word for word. Sometimes they look at the same event and you're wondering, is this the same event? And you begin to realize they're looking through different eyes at these events. Um, hopefully we're going to see some of that today. But let's, uh, let's jump to Matthew and see what he says. He returned to Nazareth, his hometown. This is Jesus. When Jesus taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? And then they scoffed. Oh, he's just the carpenter's son. We know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James. Oh, James. Joseph, Simon, and Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? That's the James we're going to be looking at. James, the brother of Jesus. And you know, when you look at this and you realize, wow, Jesus had four brothers. And it doesn't even tell us the number of sisters. Just as all his sisters live here. You know, I don't know about you, but I've always kind of pictured Jesus' family as that nice little nativity scene. You know, the three of them together, and somewhere along the lines, Joseph dies, and then it's Mary and Jesus. But no, it was this 
whole group in Jesus' family. Um, so let's kind of take a look at the interaction that Jesus had with his family. And to begin with, I'm going to go back to the Gospel of Mark or to the um, biography that Mark has of Jesus' life. And we're going to go about maybe a year before this incident. But it's still in his hometown of Nazareth. Here we go. He returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, oh, you know what? This is the same passage. And I just wanted to point out the next verse. The town was deeply offended and refused to believe him. The question I would ask us when we see that reaction of the town toward Jesus, I wonder how easy it was to be in the family of Jesus. I wonder what it was like. I mean, first, you ask the question, what's it like to have Jesus as a brother? But secondly, yes, what's it like to have Jesus in your family? And he's going around in this ministry, and you're seeing how the reactions are starting to come in. Well, now we're going to go to Mark. Now we're going to go about a year ahead, and we're going to go back to Nazareth. Here's what we're going to see. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside. They sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. This is one of those verses that gives a reference to the family of Jesus, to the brothers. And there's, I believe, James is right there in the middle. In fact, when you looked at that list, James was the next one after Jesus. So he probably was the oldest brother in this group right now as they're going to go see Jesus. Um, all well and good, they're going to go see Jesus. But 10 verses earlier, we get a little insight into what's motivating them to go. You know, I almost picture Mary grabbing her boys and saying, I think we need to go see Jesus across town. He's in a house over there. Here's what we read earlier. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. And when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. That's a pretty harsh thing to say. And I thought, well, maybe they might have said, oh, he's just, you know, he's being pressured too much. He's a little imbalanced. But no, the word means loony. He's, he's out of his mind. He's, he's lost his senses. And I have to admit now, I'm just speculating because we don't have any other input into this. But I'm speculating that Mary did not think Jesus was out of his mind. And the reason I speculate that is because Mary had the inside scoop. I mean, she remembers Gabriel coming to her and saying, you have been chosen to give birth to the Messiah. Your child is going to do this and this. And, and she treasured those things in her heart. And I'm sure she had to wrestle with those things as well. I kind of sense that Mary may have said, okay, boys, I, I hear that your brother it might be a little bit in over his head. Let's go and let's go help him. Let's go just to bring him home so he can have some rest. And I can almost hear the brothers. Oh, Jesus again? You mean we've got to go rescue Jesus again? He's, he's just pushing this thing too far, Mom. He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. Well, they take the journey across town and they come back to the house. And we're going to pick it up again in those verses we read earlier. 
And someone said, your mother, your brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and he said, look, these are my mothers and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I don't know about you, but whenever I've read that verse, I thought, Jesus, you're being kind of hard on your family. I mean, they're coming to see you. They want to talk to you, and you kind of just put them down. Again, I, I speculate here. But as I've been working on this, this sermon, it's just been fascinating as I see this character James come alive more and more. And I really believe what Jesus is saying here is, my brothers don't really believe God's will for my life. My brothers have really not accepted what God has, made, has called me to do, to be the Messiah. My family are, are those people who do believe, who do step in there with me. Well, I'm going to go about three chapters later, and this is going to be a parallel passage to what we read in Matthew earlier. Uh, this is about a year later in Jesus' ministry. He's back in Nazareth, and you're going to say, wow, these verses sound very similar. Let's see. Jesus left that part of the country, returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And they asked, where did he get all such this wisdom and this power to perform such miracles? And then they scoffed. Well, he's just a carpenter. He's the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And his sisters live here right among us. And they were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. Now, I don't expect all of you to remember the exact verbiage that Matthew used. But the only difference between these two verses is in, the first, in, the, in Matthew, they said, oh, he's just the carpenter's son. In this one, they say, oh, he's just a carpenter. And, and the town was offended by him. But what's interesting to me about this passage in Mark are the next verses that come. Here's how Jesus responds. And Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And I read that and I realize, wow. Jesus' brothers and sisters struggled with what he said he was to be about. And they did not honor him. And I can just see James right up there at the top of the list. Having a problem with Jesus. Let me just say, what would it be like? What would it be like to have Jesus as your brother? Think about that for a while. We're going to go to another passage. There's only like three passages that mention the family of Jesus. And, and, and James would be in that family. This is in John. John's biography in John chapter 7. And this would be about six months maybe before Jesus is crucified. So it's kind of in that last year. It's toward the end of his ministry. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do all these wonderful things, show yourself to the world. So here's the setting. 
the Festival of Shelters or the Festival of Tabernacles that's getting ready to happen in Jerusalem. And that's when it was one of the three major festivals and as many Jews as possible could come and they would just fill Jerusalem. And this was a very celebratory festival. Now, the brothers are saying go down there. And you know, as I read this, I tried to read it as sincerely as I could. But let me reread it because I really think this is how they spoke these words. Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can really do such wonderful things, well then, hey, it's about time you show yourself to the world. And the reason I think that's the case is because of the next verse. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So here you've got this scenario. Here's James, and here are the three other brothers. And they're kind of chiding Jesus. They're taunting him. They're saying, oh, come on, go down. If you can do all these miracle workers that we, that we hear about, go and do it in Jerusalem where everybody will watch. Hmm. I wonder how that hurt. Those are the three passages that we have about James and about the family of Jesus. And you're probably saying, that's not much. It isn't, but it's enough to show James does not believe in his brother. James was cynical enough to taunt his brother. James did not honor the calling that God had on his brother's life. But James was still his brother. There's one more passage that kind of gives us a little hint, even though it doesn't mention James or the other brothers. And that's found at the end of John. It's this. Standing near the cross where Jesus' mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, which would be John, he said to her, dear woman, here's your son. And he said to this disciple, here's your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Two questions. Where's James? Where are the other brothers? And, and you know, when I ask that, I can be kind of hard on him. I would not want to stand at my brother's crucifixion. I, I love my brother so much. And I idolize my brother. But I will tell you, if my brother was dying, or if a loved one of my brother was dying and my brother was in pain, I'd be there. I would be there to walk with him through that. James is not there with Jesus. James is not there with his mother. And so you have this transfer. When Jesus looks down and says, John, this is your mother now. Wow. So I come to that question. What's so hard about being Jesus' brother? What is so hard about having a brother who's perfect? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you had a brother that was perfect? Now, like I told you, I idolized my brother. In fact, it makes me laugh. It makes Carrie laugh too. But when I look back, when I entered high school, I tried to pattern my life after my brother. He was four years older. And I ran for student council, I ran for this and that, and I did all, and I played football just like my brother did. When I went to college, I did just like my brother did. It kind of changed after that, but um, still, I, I really 
idolized my brother. But boy, what, what if your brother was perfect? And you had a mom who kept saying, you know, Jesus did it this way. That would wear after a while. What if, what if your brother or your sibling was like Luke 2.52? Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Wow, talk about a popularity. I mean, talk about being in the shadow of your brother. Maybe a third reason. What's it like to have a sibling who leaves the family business for whatever this pipe dream is that he's got? And you're left there trying to keep the carpentry shop open. I don't know. You know, we can speculate about all of that. But let me give you one last verse. It's the verse that we went to in the very beginning. In 1 Corinthians 15, what changed it all? He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And that moment was a moment of the beginning of transformation. And I would just remind each and every one of us who's sitting here, and when I point at each of you, I've got three pointing back at me to remind me. Jesus came to us in our unbelief. Jesus did not abandon us with our questions. Jesus did not abandon us when we said no to him. He was there and he was working in us and he was bringing about conviction and he was bringing about truth. Jesus was there in our unbelief just like he came to James in his disbelief. I think of an individual who's been very impactful in my life. And I think probably most of you would know this guy, this fella, but there may be some of you who don't. His name is Charles Colson. Charles Colson was a rising star. He was, uh, as a young man, he studied law, came out and had a very successful law practice. And then he got involved in politics and he was a right hand to Richard Nixon during his administration. And he was known as the hatchet man, the hatchet man for Richard Nixon. In other words, he's the guy that did all the dirty political tricks. And you know, many times when we think of Richard Nixon's administration, that's what we think of first and foremost. We think of Watergate. And Charles Colson was the mastermind of Watergate, of going and trying to steal these records from the Democratic Party. He tried to defame and discredit so many others who were in the opposing side. Well, finally things began to catch up with him. Things began to close in on him. He got scared. And he ended up leaving the administration. He ended up quitting and he went back to law. But things did not stop. The noose got tighter and tighter. When he was back there in law, uh, he realized he didn't know how much longer he would have. He went to a friend's house who he was uh, preparing a court case for. And while he was there, he said to him, boy, I'm, I'm scared. And this friend said, well, let's talk. And so he shared a little bit about how, the, how the, all the evidence was starting to mount up against him. And his friend went over to his library, picked up a book. It was called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he opened it up to a chapter and he read the chapter to Chuck Colson. And it was the chapter on the pride of man. 
how pride can fill us and can kind of blind us to the actions we do. And we can do horrible things the prouder and prouder we get. And it can keep us from seeing the God who loves us. And when he finished reading that chapter, he looked at Colson and he said, can I pray for you? And Chuck Colson said, no. But I'll take the book. So he took the book and he left. Uh, God had never been at a place in his life. He got out, he got in his car, he drove out, and he didn't make it much more than a mile when he had to pull off the road because his eyes were full of tears. And he said he sat in that car and he wept for an hour. And he wept. And after a while of weeping, he began to cry out to God. He said, God, if you're real, God, if you're here in this, in this car, please, I surrender to you. I don't know how you can make anything out of the mess of my life I've made it, but I surrender to you and I just ask you, yeah, do it. You look at this picture. This picture was taken like eight months after he made that confession of faith. Eight months after he'd been a Christian. Eight months later, he was convicted of his crimes. He was put into prison. Eight months later, he was put into trial. And, you know, because of what had happened in his life, he realized he was guilty. And he pleaded guilty. And his lawyer said, don't do that. You're going to just impinge on everybody else. But he pleaded guilty. And he, and he went into prison. I show you this picture so you realize, when Jesus Christ enters our life, it doesn't erase the consequences of what we've done. But he sure walks with us into those consequences and helps us face them and to bring healing and restoration. And the same is true of his brother. The same is true of his brother who was cynical about him, who taunted him, who doubted him, who did not believe in him, who did not honor him, who did not believe that God had a special purpose for him. But when he revealed himself to James, a transformation began taking place. You know, and I believe this next verse I'm going to show you probably happened about maybe 30, 35 days after this verse. Because it took place right at the ascension when Jesus met with his disciples and he ascended up into heaven. And then it says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of about a half a mile. And when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. They all met together. They were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. The brothers who cynically denied their brother. They were now with the other disciples together. They were praying united. I believe that James went with that, with that meeting that he had with Jesus. And I don't know what happened in that meeting. All it says was, Jesus appeared to James. I'd kind of like to think Jesus went up and gave him a big hug. I mean, maybe he said, surprise. <laughs> but he gave him a big hug. I don't think he said, do you believe now? <laughs> no, I think he said to him, James, I want you to be on my team. Come, follow me. And James and his brothers are there in those initial days. We're going to jump around to some other verses, but let me just say that just a few days after this, on the day of Pentecost, it says that the 120, the same 120 that were here on this day, the same 120 were in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit came down upon them. And I just pictured James going out in the street and for the first time in his life talking about his brother 
in positive ways and sharing the truth of what his brother had done. Wow. But there's still some other verses afterwards. What happened to James? I mean, what what took place? Um, And again, they're just inferences. There's nothing that really has a biography of James. We don't see any long passages, but we see people referring to him. And the first one we see is in the book of Galatians, and it's from Paul, the Apostle Paul. And basically, he's talking about after his conversion, uh, when he had that marvelous conversion on the road to Damascus, and then he went down into Arabia for for a while, and then he came back, and then it says he went down to Jerusalem. And this was probably about maybe six, seven years after these verses on the ascension. This is what we read. Three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. And the only other apostle I met at that time was James, the Lord's brother. All of a sudden, James is an apostle. Wow. This guy who was cynically denying Jesus. Now he's an apostle there in Jerusalem. Somebody else mentions James, and uh, it's probably about four or five years later after this occurred, and it was Peter. And if you read in Acts chapter 12, right in the very beginning, it tells us that there's another James, James the son of Zebedee, James the son of Thunder, who is executed. King Herod imprisoned him and executed him, and he was so amazed at the popular outcry that the Jews gave that he went out and arrested Peter. And he thought, I'm going to do the same thing, win a few points with these Jews. But that night... The angel of the Lord came and freed Peter from that prison. And Peter walked out. It's funny. When you read it, read Acts chapter 12 sometime. Because Peter's walking out there and says, man, I don't don't even believe what happened. And he finally gets his senses and he walks over to where he knows some believers are. And he knocks on the door and the little servant girl comes. And she looks through the, the opening and she sees Peter and says, oh my goodness. He runs back because they're having a prayer meeting, praying that Peter would be delivered from prison. And she tells him and everybody looks at her and says, you're nuts. And they're praying that he'd be delivered. And there he is. Finally, she convinces them to come to the door. They come to the door and there's Peter. And they're all rejoicing and they're excited. And then Peter comes and tells them everything about how he was delivered from prison. And then Peter says these interesting words. Tell James and the other brothers what happened. Tell James what happened. Isn't it interesting? The first person Peter says is tell James. James seems to be rising in some kind of importance going on here. The cynical, disbelieving brother. Um, I'm going to go back to another thing that Paul said. And this is in Galatians, but Paul has now gone on his first missionary journey. He's gone out there and all these Gentiles have come and and believed in Jesus Christ. and, And Paul is left with kind of an issue because, wow, do you tell him, hey, you're now following Christ, but you know, he was Jewish. You got to be like the Jews. And there's a lot of the Jewish Christians who are saying, they need to be like us. And Paul says, no, no. So he and Barnabas go back to Jerusalem. This is what comes out in Galatians. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God has given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Now, notice, James is not just an apostle. He's a pillar. He's a pillar in the church. This guy's a leader now in the church. In fact, 
when you go to the passage, it kind of expands this bigger. It's Acts chapter 15. It talks about a council that they had. And in that council, that's where Paul and Barnabas came and shared all the wonderful things that had happened among the Gentiles. Let's go there and look at this. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take them from, for people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written. And then he goes through verse after verse after verse after verse of the Old Testament scriptures, saying how God was going to bring his truth to the world. And then James, the brother of Jesus, the cynical brother who disbelieved, says, so it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. May I just point out, we have a debt of gratitude to this guy because you're Gentiles. I'm Gentile. We, we are non-Jews. Can you imagine if James hadn't spoken up? Somebody else would have. But James, the disbelieving brother of Jesus, had that kind of power where he spoke and the church followed. Um, one last passage. It's found in chapter 21 of Acts. And uh, basically, Paul now has traveled on three missionary journeys. He's come back to Jerusalem with his report. And here's what comes. When we arrived, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to meet with James and all the elders of the Jerusalem church were present. And after greeting them, Paul gave a detailed account of the things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul went to meet with James. And what we see is that over the years, God transformed this unbelieving man to become the leader of the Jerusalem church. To step out and lead those people and to make definitive, <laughs> definitive statements that affect us today. Well, that's the last mention of James. And all those are short little passages. Well, you know, there is one more. It's called the Epistle of James. It's called the book that he wrote, and he wrote it to the Jupiter, but he wrote it to us too. And he starts out like this. This letter is from James, a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. You know, I have a feeling, if that had been me, I would have said, this is from Dan, the brother of Jesus, and a slave to but I'd probably want to slide that little brotherhood in there. <laughs> I believe very much James was a humbled man who God used mightily. And he used him in the kingdom of our God. Um, let me go back to Chuck Colson. He was serving out his term. And I just have to read this to you really quick. Um, it was right toward the end of his term that he was serving in prison. It was at Maxwell Federal Prison Camp. And he tells how he was in the common area and he was writing a letter. He had written lots of letters. He had spent a lot of time studying scripture. He had, he had really tried to drink in and take the opportunity he had while he was in prison to know this Jesus better that he had given his life to. And he said everybody was just doing their own business when all of a sudden somebody yelled from the other side of the room, hey, Colson. And all of a sudden the room quieted down because the, the voice was coming from this big guy. His name was Archie. He was a big man in the prison. And he came over to, uh, to Colson. 
And he demanded, what are you going to do for guys like us when you get out of here? And Colson promised that he would never forget the men at Maxwell. And he would do whatever he could. And Archie looked at him and he said, bull. You big guys leave here and you forget us little guys. You're not going to do anything. He slammed a deck of cards down on the table and he walked out. And Chuck Colson never forgot that interaction. And he never forgot the interaction he had with Jesus Christ in that car. And from that time on, he committed his life to working in the prisons. And many of you know he started Prison Fellowship, which is the largest prison work in our country. Um, these are words that Colson wrote himself. I've been reflecting of late on the things God has done over that time. As I think about my life, the beginning of the prison ministry, our work in the justice area, our international ministry that reaches 100 countries, the work with the Wilberforce Forum, the Breakpoint radio program, I've come to appreciate wow, God's providence in my life. It's not the world's idea of fate or luck but it's the reality of God's divine intervention. He orchestrates the lives of his children to accomplish his good purposes. It leads to the greatest joy I've found in life. As I look back on my life, it's not having been to Buckingham Palace to receive Templeton Prizes or get honorary degrees or writing books, which he wrote 30. Some of them were some of my favorite books. The greatest joy is to see how God has chosen to use my life to touch the lives of others, people hurting, people in prison. It's been a long time since those dark days of Watergate. I'm still astounded that God would take someone who was infamous in the Watergate scandal, soon to be a convicted felon, and take him into his family and then order his steps in the way he has with me. You know, I'd just like to enforce that with each one of you. Jesus met you in your unbelief. And he brought the conviction of truth into your hearts. And he proved that, yes, I have risen from the dead. And Jesus is transforming each and every one of you. Just like he did with Chuck Colson. And you may say, well, I'm not a Chuck Colson. No, neither am I. But I'm a Dan Elliott. And you're you. And with God's power filling you, you're going to touch lives. Don't ever let the enemy come and tell you you're not worthy or you're not able or you're not capable. You've been transformed and touched by Jesus Christ and he wants to use you. Well, there's one more movement, I guess I would say, in the life of um, James that I want to look at. Go back and I see that way he, he starts his letter, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James the Just, as he was called, James the Righteous, he became known as, um, has no more mention in Scripture, but historians mention him. Josephus, who was a first century uh, historian, he was not a Christian, but he was a historian who mentions James, and he mentions him with that term just, James the Righteous. And he also pinpoints and he says, James the Just was martyred in AD 62. 62 years, 30 years or so after Jesus, his brother, was crucified. Um, there's, a, there's a historian, and I always butcher his name, Hegesippus. Hegesippus. I probably wouldn't know anyway. Uh, but he's a second century. He, he wrote these words about 120 AD. And he wrote these words about the death of James. And here's what he writes. They, the priests, 
assembled and said to James, we call on you to restrain the people since they've gone astray after Jesus, believing him to be the Christ. We call on you to persuade all who come for the Passover concerning Jesus, since all of us trust you. We in the entire populace can vouch for the fact that you are righteous and you take no one at face value. So do persuade the crowd not to err regarding Jesus. So stand on the parapet of the temple where you can be clearly seen from that height and your words would be heard by all the people with all the tribes and Gentiles to whom are gathered here for Passover. So just to reiterate the setting, it's Passover time. There's thousands of people in Jerusalem coming for that celebration. And the priestly class trusts James and they say to him, we want you to tell him, stop following Jesus. This is wrong. And they have him stand on the wall of the temple. So the scribes and Pharisees had James stand on the temple parapet and they shouted him, oh righteous one whom we all ought to believe since the people are going astray after Jesus who was crucified. Tell us, what does the door of Jesus mean? And James replied with a loud voice, why do you ask me about the son of man? He is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the great power and he will come on the clouds of heaven. Many were convinced and rejoiced at James' testimony crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Get this. Then the scribes and the Pharisees said to each other, we've made a bad mistake. <laughs> we've given him a platform to have a testimony to Jesus, but let us go up now and throw him down from that wall and then everybody will be afraid to believe. And they cried out, oh, oh, even the just one has gone astray. So they went up and they threw James down, the righteous one. Then they said to each other, let's stone James the just. And they began to stone him since the fall had not killed him. But James turned and knelt down saying, I implore you, O Lord, God and Father, forgive them. While they were pelting him with stones, one of the priests actually cried out, stop, what are you doing? The righteous one is praying for you. Then one, a laundryman, took the club that he used to beat out clothes and he hit the just on the head. And James died that way. James was martyred in what seems like a rather gruesome death. Well, that aspect of martyrdom was one of the aspects that convinced Charles Colson deeper and deeper about Christianity. And Colson died in 2012. But one of the things I remember reading in his book, and I forget if it was Loving God or Born Again, I don't know. But he wrote how when they were at Watergate, and they knew they had to cover this up. So they came up with lies to cover it up, and they all agreed together, all seven of them that had been the masterminds of Watergate, and they came up with their story. They had the administration behind them. They had all the power behind them. You know, you look at Jesus' resurrection, and it tells us in the end of Matthew, and I'll just say it in my own words, the priests gathered the guards together who came and said, oh my goodness, something happened, and when we woke up, Jesus was gone. And they said, okay, tell the people the disciples came and overpowered you, and they stole the body of Jesus. And it even says, and there's some Jews who believe this to this day. Colson as he wrestled with the whole thing of Watergate, he said, you know, there were seven of us that totally agreed on what we were going to say, and we couldn't keep that secret for two weeks. 
if the resurrection is not true, if the resurrection was just a lie, there's no way people would have lasted their whole lifetime. And there certainly is no way that they would have faced death for Jesus Christ. And I'm kind of glad James' death is not written here in Scripture. I'm kind of glad the historians had to tell us about it because that connects history with the truth of the resurrection. And my prayer for each and every one of us today is that we would have the confidence to know the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. And he can transform our pitiful lives to be lives that can make a difference with one another. Hey, let's worship God and thank him. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.